if you have to leave the audience with one question to expand their mind, what would that question be? Where will your life be in 10 years if you keep living it every day the way, the way that you lived it today? I think that's a very good question to think about possibilities, change, and so on. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, family of Optimizandome or Optimizing Me. My name is JJ Ruescas. I am the host of this show where we deconstruct the habits, routines, mindset of very, very interesting and particular humans. And what I mean particular is that they are top of their game and they are people from with whom we can learn from. Our guest today, guys, is described as an extraordinary, insightful, and thought-provoking author of seven books and countless of videos on YouTube. He wrote books like The Power of Adaptation, Ergodicity, 100 Truths That You Will Learn Too Late, and others. He is a thought leader whose work intersects areas like anti-fragility, management and operations, behavioral change, and personal development, to mention just a few. As an adaptive systems researcher and a management consultant, he helped organizations and also individuals to become more anti-fragile. He has the skill to simplify very difficult concepts and to apply them to our daily lives, which is what we will learn today. Let me introduce you to Luca Delana. Thank you, JJ. Luca, hi, how is it going? Thank you, by the way, again for, I know you're in Turin right now in Italy. Yes, exactly. Nice. So let's go down to business. Let's ask first, who is Luca Delana and what is an anti-fragility organizational consultant? Yes, yeah, so the work I do is that I'm working with uh, companies and uh, manufacturing companies, startups, fintech, and so on to make their organizations more anti-fragile. So the idea is that you can have organizations which are fragile and fragile means that things are going well, but at the first problem or at the first unexpected event, things might crumble. And then you have organizations which are one step up, they are robust. So they can withstand uh, small changes, uh, small troubles, but they do not learn out of it. They do not adapt when the market changes. And as a result, they survive in the short term and maybe even the medium term, but then they become obsolete in the long term. And then you have anti-fragile organizations, which are organizations that constantly adapt. When there is a problem, they learn it. They, they learn about it. They improve. They constantly try to surface problems and to, and to adapt and to gain an advantage. And they do it at all levels of the organization. So it's not only a top-down process at the level of strategy of the organization, but it's also in the work of every single employee and uh, in the products, in the processes, and so on. Hmm. That is a very neat definition of anti-fragility for the audience that may not know about this. And how does it relate now to other types of non-organizational entities or, or individuals? How do we benefit from, from these concepts as individuals? Yes, so the thing is that uh, every one of us, just because we are humans, we are already anti-fragile. Which means, for example, when you go to the gym and you lift some, mass some weights, you're basically creating a problem for your muscles. You're maybe breaking a couple of muscle fibers or you're creating some pressure and so on. And what happens is that a couple of days later, your muscle will have grown uh, stronger than they were before. So... In some quantity, we are already all anti-fragile. The problem is that anti-fragility requires ourselves exposing to problems, uh, noticing problems, uh, putting ourselves uh, uh, in real-life conditions and so on. And very often, we don't do it. And we don't do it maybe because we're afraid or maybe because we already put so much on our plate that we cannot tolerate uh, any minimum uh, uh, problem because it will make all our balls fall. 
or maybe we don't do it because we are uh, we uh, the opposite. So we are take, tackling two large problems, two difficult problems, which are more likely to injure us rather than to create the small problems that we can learn from. And so to become more anti-fragile, it's both uh, a question of willingness to expose yourself to problems, to proactively surface problems. Part of it, it's about looking for the right problems, for the right size of problems. So for example, if you want to get stronger, you need to go to the gym, but you need to lift just the right amount of weight. If you, waste, if you try too little, you will not grow your muscles. And if you try too much, you will enjoy yourself. And then part of it, it's also about knowing how to do it. Because it's not just about, for example, noticing that you're trying a new thing and getting a problem, but it's also about learning the right lesson, about getting some feedback, which is feedback that makes you grow. And, and there are ways to do that. Yeah. When I read The Power of Adaptation, it, it struck me how powerful this idea that you're telling us is because I don't see many people that first they like feedback or that they like the feedback that they, are, that they receive, right? And they try to actually get pleased by, oh, you did it so good. But once we receive real feedback, that is when, when, when probably do you think change happens or how does that work? Yeah, so what you're saying is a real problem. Like a lot of people, they don't like to get feedback. And that's mostly because the feedback that they get is usually bad feedback. Because part of the problem is, that, is also that people do not know how to give feedback to others. I make a very simple example. Let's say that uh, uh, you make a presentation at work and then your boss tells you, oh, it was a terrible presentation. That's bad feedback for two reasons. The first reason is that it's too much of a feedback. Like probably you're going to either ignore it or you're going to break down. And either way, you're not going to improve or even you will quit giving presentations. And the second reason is because it's not actionable feedback. So if someone tells you your, your presentation sucks, of course, the, the implicit thing is they're saying you should do better presentation, but then you have no idea on how to improve. And because you have no idea, maybe you lose motivation or maybe you try to defend your ego saying, oh, my boss is a jerk. Instead, good feedback is extremely specific and it's not related to the person, but it's related to a small action that can create improvement. So if, the so if you are the boss, what you want to do is to pick one specific actionable thing. For example, you can say, oh, Luca, your presentation, the text was too, there was too much text in the presentation. And that's good feedback. On one side, you, the feedback is not about the person anymore, but it's about something in the presentation. So you reduce the chances that the person will take it defensively and you increase the chances that it will do something about it. And then also the other person immediately knows what to do if she wants to improve, just has to remove some of the text. And that's better feedback and it's more likely to be received. And what you see in organization is that if you have bosses who are able to give good feedback, you create al almost um, an environment in which people are looking for feedback. They know that the feedback they will receive will be good feedback that makes them improve. But of course, instead, if you have uh, people that give bad feedback, then of course, the rational adaptation would be to try to avoid feedback. Thank you for that. Actually, it is very on point. Last night, I had something like you said, a presentation and feedback. And the feedback that I got was not uh, actionable, except for one person that was brave enough and came and told me, Papa, pa, JJ, you need to fix this and this and that. So now I, with your words, I'm getting it way better. Now, let's start getting into how did you get into learning about anti-fragility and about adaptation? What's it that got into this path? Well, uh, I began my career working. So first, first I've, I've had an experience in which I, I got to lead uh, a local organization. And that already had me thinking 
about how much of leading in a way is about adaptations. Because when you are a manager or, or even a salesperson or what, what not, one key thing to understand is that you will take decisions. And those decisions which have, will have a short-term effect and a long-term effect. And the short-term effect is the direct effect of the decision. And the long-term effect is how people around you will adapt to your decision. Some behaviors will be more likely and others' behavior will be less likely. And a lot of management and leading and so on is taking decisions not for their direct outcome, but for the behaviors that they make more likely in the future. And this was already one of the first lessons that I learned very often in my career and already started me getting thinking about adaptations. Then I had the chance of uh, working for a few years uh, for a um, company that was consulting in manufacturing. Uh, so we, we had to deal with operations, with real work, uh, with uh, real people. And I learned a lot out of it. And, and uh, already, and again, it was a bit of about adaptation, about creating change. And what you realize is that you cannot cre really create change top down, or at most top down, you can set some directions. You can say like, we want to change in this direction, but you cannot really uh, create operational change, uh, change that you see in the day to day. That change will have to happen bottom up. And, and at that time I learned, because I, was, I literally saw like hundreds of companies, I got to see some best practices but still they were more like, like I didn't have a framework in mind. And then about six years ago, uh, when I quit my job to, to start uh, uh, doing private consulting, I've came across Nassim Taleb and uh, his books, uh, uh, including especially Antifragile. And that gave me the framework. It was, a, I, when I read it, I realized, oh, a lot of what I knew before was actually about creating these antifragile reactions or setting systems that by themselves will react in an antifragile way. So setting systems and organization and traits in people and expectations and uh, behaviors and reactions so that one there is, once there is a problem, actually that problem will become a step forward rather than a step back. And, and from that, that's uh, how I moved of, of making this the center of my practice. Hmm. Thanks. So when you started your personal practice and Luca, when I think about you, I have so many different angles because you touched so <laughs> many different areas that, that I'm trying to actually consolidate some of them. But what would you say that were, that were the, the mistakes that you had when you were starting on this journey of, of this combination of, of areas that you had? And what are the, the mistakes that you see in other people that are trying to do that? Maybe customers or maybe your clients that, that you have individuals or organizations? Yeah, so basically two mistakes mainly to talk about, one about myself and one about other people. So the one about myself is that when I quit my job, uh, that I, when I was consulting for, for a consulting company and then I moved to do it by myself, I thought that finding clients would be easy. And instead it was incredibly hard. It was hard because I couldn't go after the clients that I was working with in my client previous job for ethical reasons, clearly. And other people, they didn't know me. They were like, uh, who's this 26 years old person who's working by himself? And that's how I began writing. And um, that's, that, that was one way to like show people that I knew what I was talking about and so on. And of course, building an audience takes much longer than you than many people think. And so my my lesson was start doing it very early, and maybe even while you're still at a at a corporate job, if you have plans of quitting one day. And then instead, the mistake about others that other people in the field are doing is that, in my opinion, they are not listening. They are not observing, like. There is, in the field of consulting, unfortunately, there is a lot of frameworks and ideas which are not born out of practice. 
but they're born out of the mind. Like someone thinks that this makes sense. And then, or they're, they're thinking about frameworks that make sense to the managers to whom you sell it rather than things that work in practice. And yeah, and instead I think that a lot of, of the good things, they're not, it's extremely difficult to invent something yourself that works. And it's much easier to go in the field and observe like a lot of companies, a lot of people and seeing what works exactly. And, and then maybe you will, you, will, um, you will take some conclusions out of it, of course. But, but that's about observing first, about checking what works in the real world rather than what make, makes sense in theory. And a lot of things that work in the real world, they don't make sense in theory. Or they seem extremely inefficient. Or they do not scale well. But that's the reality. A lot of things in management they do not scale because when you're telling a person, like if you are the CEO of a company and you're telling people and you're sending a corporate wide email, telling people how to do something, a lot of them, they will not trust you because they do not know you. They do not know whether you know what's their work. They do not know whether you know how, what clients really think, how the machines really work. They will not know whether they can trust you. They will not know whether you really think what you're saying. And a lot of change to happen requires trust. And trust does not really scale. And that's why uh, somehow you need at least some degree of middle management in which you have people that know people at least on a weekly basis and they can really drive change. And... uh, but this is not an idea, and it's an idea that large companies, they do not necessarily like because that's not something that scales well. But that's not my problem because if in practice things are hard to scale and they work well, then, then we are, we're not in wishland. Hmm. Wow. When I, was, when I was reading your books, it, I was fascinated by first how how easy it is for you to simplify concepts that are super difficult and then to land them into the, the, the mere mortals territory and how to, <laughs> how to use these things in the practical day to day. So to one of those concepts, and this is from your most recent concept book is ergodicity, right? Could you please explain to the audience how does, what, obviously it's, it's, I know it's kind of difficult to, to explain what's ergodicity, but if you could give us a, gl- a glimpse of what is ergodicity and how it can get applied into our individual lives, please. Yeah, so it's extremely hard to explain ergodicity in less than five minutes. So you will have to give me five minutes. But I, make, I will make two practical examples. So the first one is imagine that you're taking a train to go to the airport. And the train usually takes half an hour. So you decide that you will go to the train station two hours and a half before your flight starts. And then that day, one day, the the train takes two hours to get to the airport and you miss your flight. At this point, you do not care anymore about what's the average time that the train takes. Because if it usually takes 20 minutes and uh, every now and then it takes two hours and the average is 30 minutes. You do not really care about that. What you care about is that you lost your, 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 your plane ticket. And if the next time you get to the airport 10 minutes in advance, you, they will not give you an additional plane ticket. So the, the lesson is that when there are irreversible consequences, such as lo- you losing the airplane, then you do not care about averages anymore. Or at least you cannot care about average alone. Averages do not tell you the full story when there is a possibility of of irreversible loss. And some applications in uh, in real life would be, um, um, for example, you do not really care what's the average uh, gain of a financial instrument if there is a possibility of irreversible loss. What you want to do instead is first you protect yourself against the possibility of irreversible loss, 
And only at that point, you can start thinking about averages and uh, optimizing average and so on and so forth. Now, I make a second example, now, now that we have some, some bricks to build upon. I begin the book with the example of my cousin. My cousin uh, used to start skiing very, very early. And uh, he even made it to the world championships of skiing for his age bracket. And then when he was uh, still in his teens, he uh, broke first a knee, then he broke an ankle and a few other injuries, and he had to retire uh, before he, uh, he was 19 years old. And one lesson that you can get out of it is that the fastest skiers are not the absolutely fastest skier around, but they are the fastest skiers of those who survived. And now I'm not just saying that survival matters just as performance. I'm saying that survival matters more than performance. And usually when I say this thing, people think that it's just a theoretical point, philosophical and so on. Instead, no, it's also very quantitative. And I make a very simple com uh, computation to, to show you that it's, that it's actually like this. So imagine that you have a ski championship with 10 races. And my cousin has a 20% chance of winning each race and a 20% chance of breaking his leg. How many races will he win in a championship of 10 races? So the naive answer is two races. Because you're, you're saying there are 10 races, he has a 20% chance of winning each, so 20% times 10 makes two. But that's wrong. Because, in, for example, in the first race, he has a 20% chance of breaking his leg. And if he breaks his leg, he cannot participate to the other races. So he means that he only has an 80% chance of participating to the second race, and 80% times 20% means that he has a 16% chances of winning the second race. And he has even fewer chances of participating to the third race and so on. And if you make the computation, you discover that the average amount of uh, wins will only be 0, 0,71, much fewer than two. And that's why I'm saying that survival matter much more than performance. And the more you have a long-term horizon, the more this sentence is true. And that's basically the core idea of ergodicity. The idea of ergodicity is that you only think about averages and performance in the measure that you have secured survival or that you have secured reversibility. How do you apply this or how do you suggest to apply this to an individual's life? Yeah, so one application is, let's say that you, you think you want to, to bake cakes. So what's, let's talk about averages and baking cakes. If you take 10 people and you get them to bake one cake each, the average result is 10 bad cakes because for everyone it's the first cake and it's going to be a mess. If you are baking, you, one person are baking 10 cakes, the average result will be two bad cakes and uh, eight good cakes because you're learning. Now, learning is a phantom consequence. And I call it phantom consequence because if you do the activity once, it doesn't matter. But if you repeat the outcome, the, the, the activity 10 times, the, the phantom consequence is the main determinant of uh, your performance. So the fact that you learn is is what will determine how your 10 cakes look like, not how good you were in the first. Now, the problem is that a lot of times when we, when we talk about um, interventions, about plans, about uh, what should I do next, we make cost-benefits calculation. And we make cost-benefits calculation based on the short term. And we do not put the phantom consequences in. But... If you have any plans of, do, of staying for a long time in a career or in a relationship or um, doing a hobby or whatnot, phantom consequences will be 
basically what determine your long-term outcome. And that's what you will have to optimize for. So for example, let's say that you're thinking about uh, um, what sport should I uh, become a professional in? Like, of course, there is a part of it which is about what you're passionate and, and so on. But another part of it should also be like, not only what you're the best at immediately, but it's about the phantom consequences. So about what you can, in which sport you can learn the most from, which, in which sport you have the margins of growth, let's say they are the highest. And the same thing if you're talking about making it uh, your profession, like your source of income, maybe you want not only to think about how big is the advertising market now for that sport, but you want to think about how fast it's growing and considerations like that. And perhaps more relevantly, it means that how much you're learning is a key variable that you should focus on optimizing much more than other things such as how fast you are. Like if you have the, the game tomorrow, the race tomorrow, then it makes sense to, to optimize how fast you, you're going. But if you have a career in a sport, then the variable to optimize is how much you're learning. And if that's the variable that you're optimizing, then you want to ask yourself things as, how, what should I change in my practice so that I learn more? And for example, that could be hiring a coach, taking notes, uh, doing more practice or doing less practice and spending more time reviewing my practice or whatnot. But basically one of the application is focus on optimizing uh, how much you're learning, how much you're growing. And the second thing, of course, is optimize your survival. So make sure that you are not taking risks during your practice that might end your career. Make sure, yeah, basically. Hmm. Look, it makes me think, and correct me if I'm wrong, does it sound, does it sound like the leading and lagging indicators? If, if for some people, let's, can we contextualize what are leading and, 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 and lagging indicators, please? Yes, so lagging indicators are metrics that measure past performance. Ah, okay. For example, profit. For example, speed in racing. And leading indicators are metrics that measure the future. And that could be rate of learning, that could be, um, I don't know, customer satisfaction, and so on. And the key thing to understand is that lagging indicators they have no power to change the future. And only leading indicators can change the future. And therefore, to some extent, you should also measure leading indicators and you should try to focus on improving leading indicators as well. And actually, the way I do it usually is that I build a, a visual way to, to show it is that I build a pyramid. And the pyramid has four layers. And at the top layer, you have lagging indicators. For example, profit. Because of course you want to measure performance. You want to know whether you're, whether at the end all your efforts are paying out. The second layer is leading indicators. Because these are the activities that will improve your future. And of course you need to proactively dedicate time on it. And that's what you want to measure in the day to day. That's what you want to wake up and say, that's what I will do tomorrow. Then in the third layer, you need to have some checks and balances, which ensure that what you put at the top and in, in the first two layers are correct. Because at the beginning, you will put what makes sense. But then maybe after one month, you will discover that working on something doesn't bring at all the results that you're doing or that you should do something. And this third layer is what brings antifragility. Because if you only had the first two, you will not be learning. Maybe you will be improving, but not learning. And at some point, you will stop improving. The third layer is reviews, these checks and balances, these, uh, am I having any problem? What can I learn out of it? Or how can I make myself better? That's what brings antifragility. 
And then on the fourth layer of the pyramid at the bottom, you have survival. And there you put the activities that, or the checks on the, or the metrics that make sure that you will not go out of business or you will not end your career. You will not die and so on. And this could be, for example, making sure that you have enough cash in the bank, making sure that you are not so dependent from one single customer or supplier so that if there is a problem, you will go out of business, uh, making sure that uh, you have the personal protective equipment so that you cannot seriously injure, your, injure yourself and so on. And if you have such a pyramid that takes account of all the four things, so leading, lagging indicator, the outcomes, leading indicators, how you get to the outcome, checks and balances, how you make sure that you, you, how you keep correcting the path, and survival, which is how you keep in, in game, basically, success is almost assured. Hmm. Wow. You gave me so many ideas from this one. Thank you very much. Um, let's ask this. How, or let's, let me ask this if I can. What are your leading and lagging indicators at this moment in your life? Yeah, so for example, uh, for, for business, the lagging indicator is probably uh, profit and uh, like, uh, yeah, income, basically. And uh, the leading indicators will be the reviews on my books and courses and uh, private consulting clients will be the audience of my mailing list of Twitter, uh, will be, um, well, yeah, let's say how much time I'm spending, time that I'm spending uh, doing work that matters and so on. The third layer, so the check and balances, would be uh, a monthly review or the fact that every time that I finish or begin a project, I do a post-mortem and a pre-mortem. And in general, I have the mindset that every time that I have a problem, I, I try to think like, what can I learn out of it? What can I do differently? And that's good, not just because it's important and effective, but also because it helps me relieving a lot of pressure emotionally. Like I did a mistake, then you feel the pressure, you feel maybe some guilt, some shame, some, uh, uh, and so on. But then instead, if you transform it into a step forward, then most of these negative emotions, they go away. And then the fourth, the fourth layer is survival, which is, for example, making sure that uh, I have enough cash in my bank account, that I'm not into debt, uh, the, or that I do not have uh, too many recurring expenses, um, making sure that I uh, uh, that I'm protected against, uh, let's say, um, reputational risk, which means like keeping very high ethical standards, um, checking my uh, my sources uh, and these kind of things, and yeah. So this this would be kind of my pyramid for business. And what about in health, for example? Do you have any example in health? Yeah, well, in health, for example, lagging indicators would be one if I have any symptoms, like uh, if I get sick or whatnot, and the second one could be, for example, how if I'm overweight. The leading indicators would be whether I'm eating healthily, whether I'm exercising, and so on. Check and balances could be um, could be every now and then, for example, checking myself at the mirror. And I'm not saying just checking if I'm overweight, but for example, once per once per month, I check, I, I open my mouth and I check that like I don't have anything weird in my mouth, uh, that I don't have like the, that I don't have weird moles growing and these kind of things. And then uh, uh, survival, uh, well, in this case, like that survival, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Nice. Thanks, Luca. That example, those kind of examples land this idea so much and they're going to be super useful for the audience. Thanks for that. Now, <laughs> you were mentioning about um, lessons that you have learned through those projects, what went well, what did not go well through postmortems, let's say. 
Is there any failure that you can recall that actually changed your trajectory up to this point? Something that maybe at that point, it seemed like something terrible, but now in, in hindsight, it was, it was a, a positive event. Well, nothing really terrible, but for example, one thing was, so when I quit my corporate job, uh, to start my private practice, the first few months, it was extremely hard to get clients and I don't really like, uh, selling, uh, or like going to find clients myself. I, I don't like that or promoting myself. And so that provided, uh, like, so the next step was actually to write books and, uh, and that probably was a very good thing because by writing books, on one side, I learned a lot because writing is really an activity that clarifies idea in your mind and simplifies and makes you think about how you can really best communicate them. And on the second hand, it also put me in contact with clients and people that I would not have met otherwise. Because if I didn't do that, I would probably have kept working only with European clients and mostly clients in or in Italy and France and Spain and so on. But instead, this way, I got to know uh, great people and also great clients all around the world, thanks also to my books, uh, to, my, to what I write on Twitter and so on. Hmm. Nice. What was your thought process when you made the decision to leave the corporate? Because um, it, it, it requires courage to, to do something like that. How did you mitigate risks, for example, when you were doing that transition? Well, um, well, the thought process was basically that I stopped learning much. Like, uh, like I thought that I already learned like most of it and I could do most of my job or basically all of the job by myself. Uh, and so like, by myself, I would also have like, I would get higher share of the profits. I would have more freedom. I could, uh, I could um, work on the projects that I want, on the clients that I want and so on. About mitigating the risks, well, thankfully in my previous job, I was making enough money and I was really not spending much money. Uh, like I was living a very normal lifestyle. I didn't have like big expenses. And so that meant that I had uh, um, a cash cushion, let's say. Uh, so that was part of it. And the second part of it was that I was very confident of my work skills, of the value I provided at my job, at my previous job, at the relationship that I had there. So that I thought, like, if things go bad, I can always go back to my previous job or to a similar job. There was a reversibility factor there. It was possible to yes. go back. Exactly. Exactly. That's very well put. Because basically everything was very reversible, for me, it didn't feel like a risk at all. No. Wow. Nice. Thanks. Thanks for that. Now, Luca, how, uh, I was going to ask a broader question, but let me go to the specific one instead. How does your learning process work how do you learn better because you mentioned a little bit of, of writing how it forces you to do this so how does learning work for you yeah so part of it is just doing a lot of like let's say learning that involves proactive activity which could be uh, either writing or explaining things to people or teaching courses, or talking to clients, and so on. So that's part of it. And then the second part of it is really work as much as possible with people which do real work. Because one problem that you have, I'm thinking about management consulting, but probably it applies to other works as well, is that in management consulting, if you only talk to high-ranking managers, you don't know whether the things that you're saying are true or they're bullshit. If instead you work with people who are doing the real work, I don't know, like line workers or operations managers or um, people in the warehouse or customer support, then 
you get much better feedback. You know whether they will tell you or you will know whether you're talking about bullshit, whether you understood the real thing, whether you learned the real thing, or whether the thing that you learned was just your projection, yourself projecting the, the thing you understood on your view of the world and whether it, it won't work in practice. Yeah, so, so basically to summarize, one is doing proactive thing. And the second thing is making sure that you have a very close contact with where the things happen. Which is where your feedback comes, right? So you have... Which is where good feedback comes. Good feedback, Because right. the problem is that you can have a lot of feedback by writing books, by writing on Twitter, by talking to CEOs and whatnot, but that's not going to be good feedback. Mm, I understand. Okay. Now, talking about this, let's, let's make it a broader question. What are your habits or routines that you day-to-day -day perform that make you a better version of yourself, that you have to make them happen? What are your habits? Well, I don't really have too much uh, of a routine, of, of a real routine, but some tasks that I do regularly are... So one, I have uh, a very small list of Twitter accounts that I read uh, every single thing that they write. And the trick is because the list is small, I can afford to read everything that they write. If instead I use the Twitter timeline, I would not be able to, to read everything that really matters. Another thing that I do every day is I always get uh, some time uh, in front of a cappuccino at a coffee shop And then I bring down sheets of paper and a pen and either I write stuff that will go in my, on my books uh, or I'm thinking about a, a client problem um, or I'm thinking what I will say in the next course and so on. And these are two activities that I, that I do every day and, yeah, and they help me a lot. Writing clearly for you is what's refining your thought process, isn't it? Huh. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't think that writing is necessary, <laughs> but I think that some kind of proactive thing is necessary. So it could be writing, it could be doing, if you have a practical activity, it could be talking to people that are practically involved with the things you're doing and so on. But yeah, I think it has to be something, something proactive, let's say. Now that takes me to question How do you exercise your own critical thinking? I liked very much when you said, uh, think about the possibility of 10 races and uh, winning the 10 races, right? And the naive answer was two, like you said, uh, 20%. But that comes from naivety, right? What, how can we start exercising critical thinking to start going beyond what is what seems to be real and we're fooling ourselves? Well, I think that this uh, parallel, like I would call it like a parallel world's exercise works very well. So you see something that makes sense, maybe because uh, there is this uh, CEO that you read on the news that, uh, that, is, that done it and you think, oh, it makes sense. And then I think that it's a great ex ex uh, exercise to ask yourself, imagine 100 parallel words and that person does the same thing. Will it reach the same outcome in 100 words? And that's a good exercise to think about what you're seeing is something sufficient or whether it's something sufficient, but uh, sorry, necessary, but not sufficient or whether it's something that it's a coincidence like correlation but not causation, whether it's pure luck. So I think that that's a, uh, that's a very good exercise. Yeah. Hmm. Thanks. We're going to take notes of that. That's going to go to the blog. That's going to be very useful. Now, Luca, you mentioned, and even in your books, you mentioned a few of your resources, who you learned from, but do you have any other mentors or role models that have helped to shape your, your trajectory until this point? Well, the main one is for sure Nassim Taleb. Uh, definitely biggest influence, biggest role model. Um, 
I wouldn't know very much about anyone else. I tend to be like quite independent minded. So I don't really tend to put, to have like uh, people that I really like, let's say follow, following very particular. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed, I liked very much how you translated, if that is, the, that, that can be used in Nassim Taleb's work, because sometimes it can, it can be super difficult to read. I have many people that they couldn't finish their works or it was super tough to digest, but your work has simplified and streamlined. And on top of that, I think you have added many more layers of the work that he, he had with several of his books. So thank you for that. Yes, I would say that the main thing is that his more he his work is very related. So for for example, antifragility is very related like to the individual. Or whereas I tend to work more like with groups of people, to companies, to organizations, or or like mine is like also like 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 for example, right now I'm I'm running this anti-fragile organizations course every few months, and basically what I'm doing is is like for people who read uh, the book by Taleb, anti-fragile, and they're thinking phenomenal stuff, but I don't know how to practically apply it tomorrow to my organization, and basically my course is building a lot upon it, and yeah, so so I'm basically not repeating anything apart from the first 15 minutes of the course in which I'm telling basically what's anti-fragility, but it's about like bringing it to the practical implementation for a group, for, for a group of people with whom I, I have experience. Hmm. Where can we find that course? Uh, so right now it's, um, it's, well, you can read about it in my website. It's Luca dash delana.com slash antifragile dash organizations or you can just google like antifragile organizations luca delana and it will pop up that's probably easier nice thank you luca so if you would have only one opportunity to give an advice to a person to become more antifragile what would that advice be yeah, two advices. So the, f the first advice would be read Nassim Taleb's book. If you didn't, it's really just that good. And the second thing is every time that something happens, just think about how it could be a learning. Like what's the lesson that you should get out of it? Uh, yeah, basically that's, that's the second thing. And the good thing is that you do not necessarily do it, have to wait for something to happen to you. You can also use the experiences of others. Like if you see that something happens to your colleague, you can ask yourself, what can I learn out of it? If you see something happening to your competitor, you can ask yourself, what do I learn out of it? And so on. Hmm. That reminds me, I heard, maybe this is Warren Buffett's quote uh, when he said, learning from mistakes is good but that doesn't mean that they need to be your own mistakes, right? Your own failures. Yes. <laughs> so, okay. Um, look yeah, at and then, and then mm -hmm. just, just the third thing is of course, think about your survival first huh. because survival is necessary, uh, prerequisite for learning, because if you cannot survive a mistake, then you will not be able to learn and to implement the learning. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Game over at some point. Okay. Uh, look at, what was something that you unlearned in recent years that made your life better? I don't know. I think that uh, one thing I've learned is probably to reserve uh, bucks of time for myself for doing things that, uh, that will pay off in the long term. I think that that's something that I've learned like in the last year of my uh, corporate job. And that, that really helped a lot. So by the way, if you're working, if you're working as an employee, one big advice that I have is never do overtime unless it's paid and you really need the money. 
and instead have the discipline to try to do your current tasks in as little time as possible. And then you can spend all extra time or even overtime that you want uh, to, to do to do tasks that are important for your next stage of your career. So for example, let's say that you are an employee in a bank. Instead of working eight hours or nine hours on, on, on your current task, try to do your current task in seven hours. And the eight hour, don't take any more tasks of the type that you're already doing. And instead, try to do the tasks that your boss is doing or learn to do the tasks that your boss is doing. And that might include stuff like try to learn how to evaluate projects. It might be learn about the financials and, uh, and about the metrics. It might be have uh, talks at the coffee machine with the right people and so on and so on, or learn a skill or whatnot. Hmm. Thank you for that but advice. don't do more of what you're already doing. Okay. Thank you for that advice. What is a belief that you decided to let go over the last few years that you realize that, no, this one is not working anymore? Well, I guess that that's the other side of this. So that doing more of what I'm already doing will not change the tra my trajectory. Changes in trajectory, they almost always come from doing something new. Yeah. So I'm constantly striving to never do too much of what's working now. And I'm always think, trying to think what's the next stage and try to do something of, something of that. Hmm. Yeah. That is very tactical. Thank you. Um, Luca, we're about to, to get to the end of the presentation or this, this interview, I mean. And I wanted to ask you first, where can people find you on the net? You just mentioned it, but please let us know where can we find you. Yes, yeah, so my website is luca-delana with double N and double L uh, dot com. And then you can also find me on Twitter as Delana Luca. So again, D-E-L-L-A-N-N-A-L-U-C-A. And uh, yeah, these are the main two, part, two, two places. I also have a YouTube channel where I'm posting more and more. And yeah, that's it. Nice. Those three main places then. So the last question for you, Luca, is if you have to leave the audience with one question to expand their mind, what would that question be? Where will your life be in 10 years if you keep living it every day the way, the way that you lived it today? I think that's a very good question to think about possibilities, change, and so on. Thank you. I would think that's going to leave us in a very high note, by the way, for the end of this, this uh, episode. We really, really thank you very much, Luca. It's been a pleasure to have this hour with you, just riffing ideas and learning how your mind and your, your expertise uh, is providing. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, JJ. Thank you for inviting. Thank you for doing this. Thank nice. You. Okay, guys, if you enjoyed this conversation with Luca Delana, give it a thumbs up and subscribe to receive notifications for upcoming interviews like this. That's all for today and see you soon. Thank you, guys.